Intercessions and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and it pleases God our Saviour, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. For this I was appointed a herald, an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Well, hey there, everyone. Uh, Great to see you all again this evening as we continue our series uh, looking at truths worth dying for. Uh, we will have a, just a short question time as usual after church. So uh, as we work through 1 Timothy 2 together and, and as we work through this topic, please um, be thinking about what we're hearing and feel free to ask questions or write them down on your connection cards or ask them straight afterwards. I want to start off with a question of my own. The question is, why are evangelicals so difficult to get along with? Now, I know some of you are maybe thinking, what is that word? I've never heard that word before, or you don't know what it means, that's okay. And I know for others of you, you're thinking evangelicals are white American Republicans. Uh, that's not exactly who I'm talking to, and uh, you can talk, talk to Grambo about how easy or difficult they are to get along with. But um, evangelicalism is, just for now, just think about it basically as a label Uh, that describes a particular brand of Christianity. That's how most people think about it. But actually, Luther, Calvin, and other reformers called themselves evangelicals. In fact, the first published word, uh, the first, sorry, the first public published use of the word evangelical in English was by William Tyndale, who we looked at last week. But here's my question. What is it about evangelicals that makes them so difficult to get along with? Evangelicals are renowned for being uh, schismatic, right, prone to division, judgmental, uh, obstreperous, okay, kind of noisy and annoying, uh, pig-headed. You can look that word up later. Um, there is no other label in all of kind of Christendom, in all of Christianity, that carries with it such negative connotations. Why? I would call myself an evangelical. Why are we so hated? At least one of the factors, I think, is that evangelicals are a very exclusive group uh, by their very nature. You see, one of the fundamental tenets of evangelicalism, one of uh, our fundamental claims, is that we are not just a particular brand of Christianity. That's, That's what other people might think. But we're not just a particular brand of Christianity, a brand like Anglican or Baptist. No, no, evangelicalism is Christianity. There is no Christianity apart from evangelicalism. Uh, You see, evangel is just the Greek word, the New Testament word for gospel. So an evangelical is just someone uh, who believes the gospel. Evangelicals are gospel people. And so you see, if you're not an evangelical, if you're not a gospel person, you're not a Christian. If you're not an evangelical, you won't be saved. You won't enjoy eternal life. So you see, evangelicalism really is radically exclusive, confronting, uncompromising, dogmatic, and uncomfortable. And actually, this kind of uncomfortable exclusivity, I think, is captured in these five slogans we've been looking at together. See, we're we're not just content to talk about grace 
which would make everyone happy, but we have to talk about grace alone, which just to be difficult. We're not content to talk about Christ, but Christ alone, which is far more confronting. Now, as we dig into 1 Timothy chapter 2, for many people, 1 Timothy 2 kind of sums up the problem with evangelicals. This chapter is rather infamous among uh, liberals because it's so dogmatic and rigid and uncompromising. But in fact, as we look more closely at this chapter, just the first half over the next few minutes, I want us to see that in many ways it is a rather double-edged sword. And I want us to see how biblical Christianity is always double-edged in this way. While being exclusive and uncomfortable, it is also extraordinarily inclusive and full of comfort. And these two aspects are actually uh, inextricably linked. They can't be separated. The inclusive nature of the gospel, the inclusive nature of biblical Christianity depends on the exclusive truths that are at the heart of it. So if you've got an outline in front of you, if you've got one of those uh, news sheets, you'll see that, first of all, I just want to run through this passage, picking up on a, through, on a few of the inclusive threads uh, that, are, that are in it. So check out verses 1 and 2, first of all. Uh, Paul says, First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Christians are called to pray for everyone, for Jews and Gentiles, for rich and poor, for our friends and our enemies, for everyone. Uh, I think often when people read these verses, they sometimes skip verse 1. They notice that Paul commands us to pray for our leaders, and so we do that. But don't miss the main thrust. We're, we're praying for our leaders. Why? Because first of all, God wants us to pray for everyone. And we pray for our leaders because they have such a big influence over everyone. Then verse 3, why does Paul urge us to pray for everyone? Because, he says, this is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You You see, Paul urges us to pray for everyone because God wants everyone to be saved. Everyone in every family, in every town, in every nation in the world. God wants everyone to be saved. That's pretty inclusive, isn't it? He doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. He does not delight in the death of the sinner, but wants everyone to turn and be saved. Why does God want everyone to be saved? Verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus himself human. In other words, there are not multiple gods, each kind of over their own nation and fighting for their own people. It's not as if the God of the Bible is just the God of the Jews. No, there's only one God who made us all in his image and so values and cares for us all. Uh, Paul actually says the same thing in Romans chapter 3, which we looked at at a couple of weeks ago. I'll just read from verse 28 in Romans 3. Paul says, We conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God for Jews only? Is he not also for Gentiles? Yes, for Gentiles too, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do you see how he always seems to kind of tie these two points together? Because there is only one God, he is the God of everyone, both Jews and Gentiles, and therefore he wants everyone to be saved and he offers salvation through 
faith in, uh, in the same way to everyone. So back in 1 Timothy, I notice also there is one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus, himself a human. When Jesus took on flesh, he became a brother to us all, is how the book of Hebrews puts it. It's not as if Jesus merely became a brother to the Jews. It's not as if he, he just became a member of the Jewish race. He became a member of the human race. Jesus is a brother to the Africans and the Asians and the Indians and the Australians. When God became flesh, he became a mediator for us all. A mediator is just a fancy way of saying a middleman. Okay, a mediator is a bridge or a go-between. And of course, Jesus is the perfect mediator between God and men because he is God and man in one. Right? The gap is bridged in his very person. But more than that, right, Jesus bridges the gap between us and God, not just in becoming a man, but also in his death on our behalf. Notice in verse 6. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Now, a ransom is basically a payment which spares you from suffering, okay? I think we usually uh, think of hostage situations, don't we, when we talk about a ransom? Uh, you know, some innocent person has been uh, taken captive. We pay a ransom to have them returned safely. And that's basically the right idea, but don't get the wrong impression, Uh, A ransom is not always about paying for some innocent person to be freed. It can actually involve a guilty person. For instance, in the Old Testament, when someone had committed a a crime, a terrible crime deserving the death penalty, uh, uh, not for every crime, but sometimes when a person had committed a crime deserving the death penalty, the court was allowed to let them off with a lesser punishment if they paid a ransom. That's what a ransom is. It's a payment which spares you from punishment. It it doesn't really specify whether the person is guilty or not. But of course, here in 1 Timothy 2, Paul is telling us that when Jesus paid a ransom, when Jesus died on the cross and paid in blood, he was sparing us from a punishment that we deserve. We deserve death, so he paid the full penalty by dying for us so that we could be spared. But notice he did it for us all. That's actually the sixth time that word has come up in our passage, all or every. You can see Paul is really ramming home this point. And this last time is the climax. Here is the ultimate demonstration of God's universal, inclusive love for everyone, isn't it? The ultimate testimony to God's grace is the ransom paid by his son on the cross for us all. And then lastly, the last kind of uh, inclusive uh, thread I want to pick up on is in verse 7. Paul says, that's why God appointed him a herald, an apostle, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, the nations. So do you see how this massive thread of inclusivity kind of runs through this passage? It's really all about God's wonderful love for everyone. God wants us to pray for everyone because God wants everyone to be saved because he's the God over all mankind, he's one God over all mankind, and because God sent his son, uh, into the world, born as a man to be the mediator between God and humanity, all of us. He paid the ransom for all. Okay, but now let's turn to the other side. Because you will have already noticed that at the very same time, this passage is deeply exclusive. And that these two aspects can't be separated. 
everything inclusive about the gospel rests on the fact that there are some dogmatic, uncompromising, exclusive truths at the heart of the gospel. So let's, let's just go back through and have a think about those. First of all, notice the way Paul talks very dogmatically about the truth. He describes himself as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Uh, we just read that in verse 7. But then back in verse 4, he describes how God wants everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, there is truth and error. There is right and wrong. And those who do not turn to God for salvation have not found the truth. They are living a lie. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you see, the first exclusive truth at the heart of this passage is actually about the truth itself. That truth ultimately can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who continues to live in rebellion against Christ is living a lie. Even if that's you here today, I know that's hard to hear. Those of us who have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, they know it's true. Do you look back on your life? Don't you look back and think, I know I was living a lie. Coming to know Jesus is coming to know the truth. And of course, this is massively confronting for our friends and colleagues to hear. In many ways, I think more than ever, maybe that's an overstatement, but our society is so saturated with the idea that kind of all truth is relative. You can have your truth, I can have my truth. You can have your interpretation, I can have my interpretation. You can't question my truth or argue against my truth because it's my truth. Arguments about truth are useless, even dangerous, and must be silenced. And so you can see why in a world like that, biblical Christianity is extraordinarily uncomfortable and confronting. The Bible says ultimately there is only one truth, one reality, and we must accept it if we're going to be saved. And secondly, this leaves no place for, uh, since, since we're celebrating the Reformation, I want to mention uh, one particular doctrine that's prevalent in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about this, but Roman Catholics teach uh, something called, they talk about anonymous Christians. Has anyone heard that phrase before? Anonymous Christians? No? Okay. Um, a Roman Catholic theologian called Karl Rahner came up with this notion of an anonymous Christian, whereby he says, someone who has never heard the Christian gospel will be saved through Christ if they are a sincere believer in their own religion and have followed their conscience. And this guy's not an out there kind of, uh, you know, peripheral guy. This was adopted officially by the Roman Catholic Church at Vatican II, And so the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church puts it like this in Article 847. Those who through no fault of their own, whatever that means, but those who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and moved by grace try in their actions to do his will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience, those too may achieve eternal salvation. Now, frankly, that's just a load of rubbish, isn't it? But let me, uh, let me read to you, because it's not, this is not a new idea. Let me read to you from uh, the 39 articles of the Anglican Church, which Cranmer wrote 
500 years ago almost. Article 18, uh, Iraqi and I are the only ones who have our prayer books with us. Um, article 18 says, says this. Oh, I'm at Article 28. Useless. Please excuse me. Listen to this. Of obtaining eternal salvation only by the name of Christ. This is Cranmer's article. They also are to be had accursed that presume to say that every man shall be saved by the law or sect which he professeth so that he be diligent to frame his life according to that law and the light of nature, like what he learns from creation. For Holy Scripture doth set out unto us only the name of Jesus Christ, whereby men must be saved. See, this idea that, uh, that Ran has come up with is really not a new idea. But of course the Bible speaks dogmatically against that. If we are going to remain faithful to God's word, we ought to stand firmly against that kind of nonsense. The Bible is so much more straightforward and clear. Ironically, so many people, as, as Karl Rahn has tried to be inclusive of everyone, so many people have been deeply offended by that kind of nonsense, as if they are anonymous Christians, because this, this is what he thinks Hindus are and Buddhists are, and, and the Hindus, of course, are like, no, we're not. How dare you? Um, but truth does matter. Salvation can only come through the knowledge of the truth and what, how we need to relate to Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and whoever is we must proclaim the gospel to them, proclaim the truth, speak the truth, disagree with them with clarity, conviction, with gentleness, with respect, so that they might come to be saved. Secondly, of course, Christianity is exclusive because we only acknowledge one God. Allah is a lie. Ganesh is a figment of some devilish imagination. There is only one God. That's why we're all ultimately answerable to him. That's why we're all called to acknowledge the same truth. We actually have to deal with the God who is there. You, you can't just try and relate to a God of your imagination. It, it, I like to think of God this way. Well, who cares what you like to think of God as? You, know? uh, you, you don't say that about anyone else, do you? you know? I like to think of my wife Catherine as... I don't know, I wouldn't say anything. Uh, that's, that's deadly, isn't it? But that, that is ridiculous. You have to deal with the, the wonderful woman who is there. And you have to deal with the God who is there. It's no good railing against God because you'd like him to operate some other way. You'd like him to be, to be different. No amount of protesting is going to change uh, God. No amount of kind of faith or something like that as if faith changes who God is. There is only one God. Thirdly, there is only one mediator. There are not multiple mediators between God and men. Christ alone is our mediator. He is our prophet priest and king. As a prophet, he speaks on God's behalf. As a king, he rules on God's behalf. But this evening, I want us to focus on the fact that Christ is our priest, because this is really the battle that Cranmer fought. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple, and the sacrificial system were designed to teach people that because of their sin, they could now no longer live with God freely, relating to him the way Adam and Eve knew him in the garden. Uh, when, Adam and Eve were, uh, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they were kicked out of the garden, do you remember? And the temple was designed a little bit like, it was a little bit of a, it was a model of the Garden of Eden. Okay, so the Holy of Holies at the very center was where God dwelt. 
And no one could go in there because there was a big curtain, a big heavy curtain in the way that had an angel embroidered on it. And so do you remember how when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, God put an angel with a flaming sword at the entrance uh, to the garden to guard the way back into it? Well, that's what's happening here. That's what's being said. The only person who could go through that curtain back into the garden, as it were, back into God's presence, was the high priest. And he could only go in once a year on the Day of Atonement having performed several sacrifices on behalf of, for, for himself and then on behalf of the people. You see, he was the mediator between God and his people, between God and humanity. Now fast forward into the New Testament. What does that mean for us today? Should we have temples and priests? Are we lacking the necessary mediators? Surely God is no less holy, no less angry with our sin, Do we need a priest? Do we need a mediator? The answer from the Roman Catholic Church is basically yes, which is why they design their churches, their church buildings, like temples. That's why they have priests with special robes on who make their daily sacrifices uh, when they perform the Mass. And of course, your local priest is not the only mediator between you and God. You can only relate to God through the church hierarchy, through bishops and the Pope. The Pope calls himself the pontiff, which means the bridge. Okay, because he's the mediator, he's the bridge between God and men. Which is a horrendous blasphemy. It undermines the honor that is due to our Lord Jesus Christ as our only mediator. There is only one mediator between God and men, and that's Jesus Christ. And any so-called additional mediators imply that Jesus is inadequate. And in many ways, this is what the whole book of Hebrews is about. The whole book of Hebrews is about teaching us what that Old Testament sacrificial system and all that, all that priestly stuff, what that all means for us. It's about the fact that Christ is our high priest. Christ is our mediator, the only mediator we need. And we certainly don't need to go back to the Old Testament shadows or try and recreate them in our local churches. Uh, let me read from chapter uh, 7 of Hebrews, verse 26. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Not the description of any Roman Catholic priest I've ever met, nor of myself, nor of any of us. We need a holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners priest, one who's been exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. Who is it? Of course, it's Christ. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. Talking about the Old Testament. But the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. You see, Jesus is the kind of high priest we need, is what Hebrews is saying. All the other priests were inadequate, weak, but God's son is perfect We don't need any other mediator. He can't be supplemented. And finally, uh, this is intimately bound up with the fact that Christ's sacrifice was also perfect. Uh, 1 Timothy talked about Christ's ransom for all. Well, Hebrews spells out exactly how exclusive that statement is. Because Christ has given himself as a ransom for all, there is no space for any other ransom, any other sacrifice, as if Christ's work was incomplete. 
or needs to be supplemented in some way. Christ doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 27. So we certainly don't need to go back to the old system, offering sacrifices every day, as if somehow Christ's sacrifice was insufficient. Yet this is precisely what the Roman Catholics claim to be doing. This is the absolute dead center of every Roman Catholic service. It's not the preaching of the word, as it is in evangelical churches. But instead, it is the re-sacrificing of Christ in the Mass. This is why you go to church as a Roman Catholic. And this is one of the most significant errors that Thomas Cranmer stood against and which has been an ongoing battle between evangelicals and Roman Catholics and Anglo-Catholics, which are kind of um, Anglicans who are trying to take Anglicanism back to Roman Catholicism, kind of undo the work that Thomas Cranmer did. So listen to how Cranmer put it in Article 31 of the Anglican Church, which is entitled, Of the One Oblation of Christ Finished Upon the Cross. Article 31. The offering of Christ, once made, is that perfect redemption, propitiation, and satisfaction for all the sins of the whole world, both original and actual. And there is none other satisfaction for sin but that alone. Wherefore, the sacrifices of masses, in which it was commonly said that the priest did offer Christ for the living and the dead to have remission of pain or guilt were blasphemous fables and dangerous deceits. Christ was sacrificed once for all. Other priests needed to offer sacrifices every day, but he only needed to offer one sacrifice once for all when he offered himself. And that means our salvation is entirely dependent on God's grace alone in Christ alone, rather than on anything we do, any ritual we perform, or experience we have, any good works we do, or anything like that. Okay, so let me wrap up. You see, this is why evangelicals, biblical Christianity, is so clear and dogmatic. We need to be clear and dogmatic when it comes to the exclusive truths of the gospel. If we are going to be growing people passionate for Christ, we need to be growing people passionate for Christ alone. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter said, there is no other name under heaven given among, uh, among men by which we must be saved. 6.45. If we give up on Christ alone, we are giving up on the gospel. We will empty the gospel of any of its significance or comfort. If we water it down or compromise, we will gut it of all its glory. If we add to it, you know... Uh, as if you need Christ plus rituals, rules, and religiosity to be saved or to be a full and complete Christian, even, even good things. But if we make them necessary for salvation, if we add, oh, you, you have to uh, attend church and be on the roster and do your quiet times, and if we say salvation is found in Christ, but to go on living as a Christian and growing as a Christian, you have to follow certain man-made uh, rules or, or traditions— 
or you have to have visions or supernatural experiences or inner promptings or hear God's voice audibly or anything like that. If we add anything to Christ alone, we will destroy the good news of the gospel. The reason the truth, uh, the, the reason the gospel is such wonderful news for everyone is because at the absolute heart of the gospel is the dogged, uncompromising truth that Christ alone is for everyone. That Christ alone is the mediator between God and humanity. He is our only hope of reconciliation with God. He is all we need to live in fellowship with God forever. Okay, so let's, uh, let's pray together in a moment, but do you want to ask questions before that? I'll make any comments. Or just leave. Yeah. Um, if Christ's death was <coughs> sorry, a ransom for all, then why aren't all saved? Yeah, good question. Um, so go to the passage. Have you got one, Timothy, st- uh, still in front of you? Uh, I think there would be two answers to this, and I'm not sure if JJ wants to stand up and defend his position. But um, I think some people would say that Christ was a ransom for all, meaning Jews and Gentiles. So, um, which is kind of, so verse, verse 7, when Paul says, I'm not lying, I'm a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, that, you know, you can see how that could be what he's getting at. Um, so Christ gave his life as a ransom to pay for um, all God's elect throughout the Jews and Gentiles. Okay, that, that's kind of, I think, um, uh, that, that's Cal- a Calvinist kind of position. Uh, I wouldn't subscribe to that. Um, I think that uh, the question is too mathematical. Um, I suppose is my main answer, in the sense that um, I, I, if, if it helps you as an illustration, I think it's an illustration Jesus uses, um, that he's, he's a door. Do you know what I mean? He opens the way to God. So his ransom is for everyone, just in the same way that a door is for everyone, and it doesn't make it more or less effective depending on the number of people who use it. So I think Christ has opened a door for everyone, and then those who have been chosen by God and we'll listen to his word, and we'll walk through the door. Okay? It's kind of how I see it. Um, but this passage, I think, doesn't help you either way prove the answer. I, I, as I read it, I think the inclusiveness we'd both want to stress. Yeah. Great question. Don't, let's not have questions like that again. I don't, I don't, I can't think of a definition off the top of my head. I think it's just truth. It's just uh, teaching, core truth you have to believe kind of thing. Um, so in terms of what you have to believe, um, I, Christianity is essentially an attitude to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, Christianity is essentially, an, if you, what makes someone a Christian, their attitude to Jesus is he is Lord. 
I will submit to him. I'll do anything he says. He's the boss. Uh, he's ev- you know, he's everything. Okay. And uh, f- flowing from that, there are a whole load of other core truths you might want to espouse. So Jesus Lord means he died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He's coming back, etc. Okay, those would be core. Um, and then certain things about that would be core. You'd say, Jesus' death on the cross, how does that work? He took the punishment for us. He, okay, so you kind of are working out what it means that Jesus is Lord and I'm going to listen to him. Um, I think uh, you're not saved by your theology in the sense of you're not saved by your ability to articulate carefully um, the, the Bible. You're not going to get a test you know, when we get to heaven. Thank goodness for this. Um, you're not going to get some test and say, okay, so uh, can you tell me what the Trinity is? But I would say if you don't believe in the Trinity, you're, you're not saved. You're, that, that, is, that is absolutely core. You're not saved if you don't believe in the Trinity. But that's not the same as saying you need to be able to articulate the Trinity well and carefully. And uh, you know, um, So essentially, your attitude needs to be just Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my king. I follow Jesus. Um, which is why children can be Christians, you know, uh, intellectually disabled can be Christians. Do you know what I mean? Because they, they can't tell you everything. That doesn't matter. They have an attitude. They know Jesus is Lord. Um, having said that, uh, someone who can fully grasp w- what the Trinity is uh, or what, what Jesus says about the cross but rejects it, you'd say, well, actually, that shows you're not treating Jesus as Lord. Do you know what I mean? So... Um, I have a conversation, I don't know, with someone, and they say, oh, yeah, the Trinity means, you know, God God the Father is God, God the Son is God, God the Holy Spirit is God, um, and they mutually indwell or something. I don't believe that. I think Jesus is just a man. I'd say, well, even though I think he's Lord or something, you say, well, no, you, you don't. Yeah. Um, does that help? Sorry if it's a bit wordy. Last question. Oh, come on, then. Yeah, amen, hallelujah. Um, so, uh, I, think, I think this is a tricky question, but essentially what Calvin talks about, actually, is the two wills of God, okay? By which he means, I can never get the names right, I never remember, but he means like God's sovereign will, God is contr- in control of everything, anything God wants to happen will happen. Okay, that's, that's kind of obvious. That, that's what it means to be God, isn't it? Uh, he's in control of everything. Okay. The, the second one is, though, um, God doesn't always get what he wants. Okay. The second one is God's declared will or his spoken will. God says, what I want is people not to lie, not to steal. But people do lie and steal. So by definition, in a way, sin is by definition uh, when God doesn't get what he wants. Sin is by definition when you do something God doesn't want to happen. Um, so Calvin talks about these two wills. God always gets what he wants, and sometimes God doesn't get what he wants. Okay, that, that's the kind of mi- contradictory, that's the mystery, that's the, difficult, that's the difficulty, I think, at the heart of this question. The place to go, first of all, is the cross. Okay, does God want the cross to happen? Like, yeah. Because he wants everyone to be saved. How do you get saved? 
the cross. An innocent man was murdered at the cross. Does God want the cross to happen? No. Everything Pilate does, Herod does, uh, the Jewish authorities do, everything is wrong and God hates what they're doing and doesn't want them to do it and tells them not to do it. Okay. So at the cross, I think you see this... um, I think you see those two things come into play most um, starkly, where they clearly um, clash kind of at their... Is everyone following? You see the, the core level. Now, uh, how that ends up working, I think, um, is remarkable. Uh, I think in God's sovereign will, he actually has planned and purposed for his glory and our good... Um, sin, so that it's actually God's plan has been for him to not get what he wants for a time, for us to sin, and so on. His, that's actually part of his plan. So it's not just the cross. The, the cross is kind of the, the heart of it, but that's how the whole of history works. And so ultimately, I think um, what the new creation is, is where those those kind of two difficult contradictory things uh, become one where um, everyone is doing exactly what God wants them to do um, and he's in control and so on. So his sovereignty and his uh, desires, so to speak, have come to, have concluded in the new creation where we're actually all obeying him permanently forever. But for now, um, that's exactly, it, it is that is what he's allowing. He's allowing, he's affecting, yeah, this moment where he's not, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll keep maybe thinking about it, talking about it. Um, it's a massive question, and I, I'm sorry if I can't put it succinctly enough. Um, let, me, let me close in prayer. Gracious Father God, we uh, know that you want everyone to be saved. Your word tells us. You are extraordinarily loving because none of us deserve to be saved. Uh, You hate sin. You rightly uh, will punish those who continue in their rebellion. And yet, Father, you you have given your, your son so that we might come to know you, be in a relationship with you, enjoy eternity forever with you. We thank you so much, Father, that your plan throughout history has been to rescue a people for yourself who will honor you and bring you glory and who will live in righteousness and in a wonderful world forever. We pray, Father, for help to continue to to grapple with your word. We pray for those who are still lost, that in your sovereign power you would would take the gospel through us and through others into uh, their lives and uh, that you would work in their hearts to bring them to repentance and faith when they hear the gospel. Father God, we pray that we would be joined by multitudes of people on the last day. We pray, Father, that uh, you would help us to continue to put to death sin in our lives, to submit to your lordship, to submit to the Lord Jesus, so that we might uh, honor him, 
and uh, we pray that his kingdom, where everyone would, will be submitting to him, would come quickly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.